This is SG2 Perspectives, a conversation with SG2 experts and industry thought leaders about the biggest trends in healthcare and what we expect that's going to mean for the future of healthcare delivery. Strategy needs to think about how do we arm our, our contracting team with information that'll help position the market, help position the organization in the market relative to peers and capture the value that you're providing. Welcome to SG2 Perspectives. I'm your host, Trevor Durin. Today, I asked a few colleagues to join us to provide a download from research they've been leading really since the spring around current trends in the payer landscape. At one time, I was a bench player trying to really get on this team, but I have the stars here today, Brian Esser and Sushma Nara and Rich Daly. They've been interviewing managed care contracting teams, folks with payers, those from third-party intermediaries. I understand they've also developed some planning-specific tools to inform contracting strategy and how contracting teams and strategy teams can work more closely together. So this conversation is going to span not only what they've learned, but what we recommend strategy teams do with that information to become better integrated with contracting in the service of better realizing their strategic priorities. I'm excited for where this is going to go. Brian, what have been the big themes that emerged in your research Can you organize it into themes or buckets? Thanks for having me, Trevor. Good to be back. This idea of really advancing the payer portfolio is one we've been wrestling with throughout 2022. And it comes back to the fact that A, the current environment between providers and health systems who are our majority of our members, even physicians and other broader holistic provider set, and the payer side has become much more contentious. I've even heard the words caustic. It feels like the 80s again. This is an environment where at the height of the pandemic, there was different degrees of collegiality, but the payers came on board and were there in lockstep with the providers to ensure that the continued coverage and the health of the nation was taken care of. That time has passed. We are now looking at renewals on the provider side where they're coming to the table and the rate increases being asked for due to inflation, raising labor expenses, supply expenses are higher than what they have been in the past. The payers from what we're hearing in the market have not met them where they need to be. We're talking asks for 8% put on the table by the payer as a 2%. There's a gap between the positions and getting over that hump has been much more challenging than than most organizations have really had to deal with in the past few years. We're starting to see really this, almost this arc of strategies that have to all be focused on simultaneously with one being the blocking and tackling. How are you engaging with your payers and how are you fending off some of the payer behavior that we're seeing in the market? We're talking about audits, denials, delayed payments, non-qualified plans being sold, broker issues. There's the nuts and bolts the blocking and tackling of a payer engagement within the contract day-to-day. So your rev cycle teams, managed care teams really focus there. Secondarily, as you're going into the discussion, how are you arming yourself from the managed care contracting side with the data you historically have had? Here's our footprint. Here's our assets. Here's what we're working with. What also strategic insights, you know, where's the growth going to be? Where should you be placing your bets? The inflationary pressures and what that's going to do to your rates over the next several years. And how do you model that out to prove your case for higher rates today? So bringing together holistic teams into the discussion so that as you go to the table with the payers, you can argue much more efficiently for advanced rates than you may have had in the past. And then the last big bucket that keeping eye even more so is what new partnerships should you be entertaining with the payers themselves? Beyond the rate structure, 
what are you willing to do in the value-based care portion of your book of business? If you can't get the rates, are you willing to shift some of those dollars at risk and a value element for Medicare Advantage, commercial, et cetera? I'm hearing more and more on the commercial side being tied to risk, which is interesting. But even more so, could you be partnering with the payers? And I'm not saying providers start their own health plans, but they're interesting new partnerships on a joint venture or other mechanism that you can get closer to some of the payers in your field or in your region. All of this, the blocking and tackling, the interesting new bringing things to the table with collective intention across your teams to advance the discussions and then entertain new partnerships are all critical all at the same time. Well said. And Misery Loves Company, tell us a little more about what bad payer behavior looks like right now. Is it kind of the same old stuff just ramped up? Are there new tricks, tactics, places where health systems and traditional payers, usually national payers, are just butting heads? It's important also to look at this issue in terms of ongoing national trends. There's a continuous and continuing payer consolidation happening across the nation in many markets. And given that reality, it's increasingly important for health systems managed care leaders to, when they engage in negotiations with these, frequently with the national payers, they need to make sure that they move quickly up the negotiating ladder from the payers' local representatives to either regional or sometimes even national executives. It's because these are the executives that actually have the decision-making authority. And to get the provisions that health systems really prioritize, they're the ones that they are going to be making the, the decision on whether to allow those. Otherwise, the negotiating process can stretch out much longer and the potential for terming or other disruptions becomes higher. Most of what we've all experienced just amped up, ongoing audit and denials, delayed payments, asked by the payers to be dipping into the EMR with the claim that that'll improve efficiency, whether that's true or not, and whether you give that access or not is on the table. All of those combined with the breakdown in the relationship itself. And what I've learned from the managed care contracting officer point of view, they are sitting across the table from the local Blue Cross person, United person, but they've known each other for 20, 30 years. These are a long-term relationship. And that's a lot how the business has been done, You know, going back and forth and ultimately calling on the relationship to serve both organizations' needs. And the relationships are still there, but they just become maybe not contentious, but it's harder to, to work towards that end deal with both sides really digging in their heels and thinking about where should they be going. And that's coupled with the fact that payers are investing in clinical assets. We've heard the Optums and others buying primary care, DeVitas, all those kind of things are out there in the market. And in addition to that, now we're interjecting price transparency into the mix. So the payers have a sense of where providers stack up compared to their peers. They're coming to the table with either you provider or higher or lower costs, or I'm paying higher more or less to you than my other offerings in the market. Tell me why we should keep doing that or not. So it just has another wrinkle to the negotiation. The other thing I would like to add is about the price transparency law and how that doesn't really necessarily affect or help our rate negotiations as it was intended. And it really appears that payers are going to pay whatever they want relative to their competition in the market. Going back to this essentiality concept, how essential or how you're viewed as essential in the market. Right now, we have to focus a little bit more on quality. No, I think you're right. Price transparency is not getting picked up 
by myself to go shop for the MRI in Cleveland, Ohio. That's not what's happening in the market, but it is being used at the negotiating table. And let's remember that the payers have, in theory, posted all of their prices as well. So the ability of contracting teams to ingest that knowledge and think about their relative position to others in the market on the basis of price is useful. But I think it's even more imperative today to stand up the idea of what is price versus what is value. And value is price plus quality and outcomes. You may not be the cheapest, but if you have the best outcomes, there's a reason for not being the cheapest. Taking that argument really to the payers themselves and arguing about that, but even the employers and those and and the consumers and patients, that we are offering you a package of services and price is an element, but not the only element. So let's move the industry into a value discussion and not just a price one. I appreciate it. The flip side of the transparency issue for a lot of health systems is that they're not necessarily the market leader in value or quality, but they actually may be the local market leader in terms of prices in areas where they can look at their own prices compared to competitors in their market and find, you know what, we're actually the cheapest in this market, in this service line or in this area. And bringing in strategy to build out the picture of your offerings in that area, like primary care, for instance, as a package to take to payers for contracts. In exchange, they can provide steers to enrollee benefit design. Maybe another way to approach price transparency. Given the specifics of your organization's position in the market, we've talked to organizations who've taken this approach as well. Another aspect of price transparency is the requirement to list prices for a set of high-profile shoppable services like imaging. Some providers have approached payers to reduce prices on these services and then offset it elsewhere, which can provide public-facing wins for the payers and providers while keeping the providers whole. That last point's a little controversial, but it's interesting. And then lastly, at least in the commercial book of business, which is, let's be clear, you know, maybe one of the most financially oriented elements of of our portfolio, the employers becoming much more active and looking towards their payers and saying, I need savings. I'm looking at benefit costs that are skyrocketing, a tight labor market. I need to offer decent benefits to attract talent. There's a potential recession out there. And what are we going to do about that? So the employers becoming much more active and, and thinking about how do they manage their healthcare spend. Yeah, and the buck's just getting passed downstream there. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, pretty much. Well, Sushma, I know you've worked on, and you have great experience working at a health system. If you were still at a health system, how might you try to be a bridge between the way strategy looks at growth, the way strategy looks at the world, and the way managed care enters into negotiations? Because we heard a lot about the need for better data to tell a better, more compelling story from the provider's perspective. Yep. Thanks, Trevor. Health systems, we've been seeing, they've been using their essentiality, right, relative to their competitors as a way to tell a compelling story. And and a great example of this is an organization in your community that leads cardiac care. That's really a differentiator. However, when we think about this a little differently, there's an opportunity to go beyond that for provider organizations to really leverage their internal data and insights coupled with some external resources possibly our SG2 forecast, to really target the rate increases across volume growth in specific service lines or sites of care, while also alternatively accepting nominal to no increases in areas that are projected to stagnate or decline. This will yield greater financial viability than the historical blanketed increase across all areas that's been done. Sushma, I know you've modeled some of that out. What have we learned about the opportunity here? 
how we would look at this is by looking at our commercial book of business and how we can leverage our internal data coupled with SG2 forecasts to really project utilization trends across a number of years into the future and how we can use that to our internal advantage to negotiate targeted rate increases based on inpatient and outpatient movement or site of care shifts as an example. And over time, that will yield a higher viability financially than if we were to do a blanket across all service lines, procedure groups, and utilization trends. We heard that, Sushma, even from interacting with different folks. We had one AMC contracting leader who has been in the organization for 30 or 40 years. And the way that he put it out there was, hey, I have a stack of chips and I could either spread them evenly across my service lines or service areas or however you want to define that, or I can place different bets and recognize that some of these service lines, we have good growth potential based on utilization and market demographics, but we also have great physician leadership. We have great care coordination and programs across inpatient outpatient chassis. This is an area that we feel we have a competitive advantage. We want to invest in and, and achieve those growth. So I'm going to go for rates in that area versus other programs that either may be diminishing or you don't have that relative strength internally. Now, I'm not saying that any of these services are not important or critical from a care delivery aspect. From a fear financing and contracting point of view, you need to think about where do we have our strengths and how do we double down on those strengths and capture the value we're providing to the market. That's one way to think about it moving forward. And to do that from the pure contracting side, you need partnerships on strategy, but not just strategy operations, your physician leads to come to the table and say, here's where we're going to move. And if a physician leader comes to you and says, hey, the entire group's about to retire, that's something to take into consideration. So moving that around and having those discussions internally are even more critical today than they ever were. Yeah, Sushma, you're underselling how cool this analysis is and how much I think strategy teams can really lean in here because there's always been an asymmetry in the data the two sides brought to the table because the payers just have a different view of the market and the landscape than any one institution is going to have, even those who have really grown their scale to try to change that balance of power at the negotiating table. But the one thing that payers won't have that provider systems are going to have is a demand-based forecast like ours which is going to help them see not just straight line changes, but different impacts in the future where they can proactively say, oh, here's a place actually where it's okay if the rates come down a little because we're two steps ahead of the market and shifting that site of care or realizing a different growth opportunity where we'll balance it out. I'm hopeful that you guys can really push our strategy teams to get more involved here. Brian, with that in mind, if you were a leading strategy team, how do you use some of these findings, ideas to change the way you worked with managed care? Strategy needs managed care to continue to do the job that they've historically done, which is bring the maximum of revenue into the organization. That could be a rate-oriented way of doing it or value-based care or other other options are out there. Strategy needs to think about how do we arm our, our contracting team with information that'll help position the market, help position the organization in the market relative to peers and capture the value that you're providing ultimately to your consumers. As strategy leans in, having those cross-silo, cross-team dialogues and saying, here's our strategic growth areas. Can you, A, agree with that contracting or not? And then B, how can you help help us accelerate the, the revenues that we might be capturing for these areas into the future. And, and that may not all be rates. We've heard a lot of interesting discussions around, we're not going to get the commercial rates or the rates in Medicare Advantage we want, but there is this side sliver of value-based care option that could be a revenue or margin generator as well. That's going to be more targeted. Maybe that's a direct-to-employer offering, that's a narrow network or center of excellence oriented. And does the contracting team have enough insights into what that actually means? A, what's the value financially that they can 
and demonstrate will be returned to the payer and then ultimately the employer B, and then how should they position that relative to other programs or not? And contracting doesn't know all of that. It's not top of mind for them every single day. So having the strategy team lean in and say, here's how to message this effectively. And if we can do this, maybe we'll get that steerage or that center of excellence designation with the large employers in town. And we can start to bring the joints or spine maternity in-house much more aggressively. But it has to be this two-way dialogue. And then contracting needs to be able to come back to strategy and saying, it's not flying. They're not hearing that. We need to either think about the messaging or think about the programmatic offerings so that it resonates more with the consumers of care. I also want to add to that a little bit of color. If we're talking about capital investments, strategy really has the key to that insight into the organization, thinking more about where we expect our sites of care to shift, but also our utilization to shift to these different alternative sites of care, in addition to the physician group leadership, understanding the movement of retention and potentially loss of physician groups that we expect to have. Brian and Sushma. You talked a lot about potential partnerships. Give me some examples of what you've heard. Have you heard some good creative options that you think kind of give you hope that there are partnerships out there, even in markets that are pretty contentious or where there's one payer who's so dominant? Yeah, so one is interesting for sure. It's interesting the fact that it's a a fairly concentrated market on the payer side. So one dominant major payer, whereas the provider set is a bit more diluted. And one of our organizations leaning in and saying, ultimately, we want to align ourselves really fairly tightly with the payer. We're willing to put our money where our mouth is and think about a JV around really the value orientation. But within that program, they effectively are doubling their primary care base because the provider has a limited number of primary care in the community. The payer has tied themselves to the independent primary care community through different partnerships, not ownership and employment, but more contractual related partnerships and in buying into the entity that's holding those contracts on the payer side, this system is effectively doubling their their primary care footprint, which will lead to overall better access, but ultimately more downstream surgical volume they're looking for. Then it gives them a chassis to advance value-based care in a much more aggressive way throughout the market. That seems to be a way that they can both engage in it, but also help design those programs with the payer in lockstep. It's an interesting play. We'll see if it goes forward, but it's advancing both their fee-for-service book of business, but also their longer-term value strategy. Another interesting way to think about advancing the portfolio, and Trevor, you work on this, the Medicare side of your portfolio, providers are not negotiating their fee-for-service rates, but Medicare Advantage continues to grow. Trevor, you can check me when we're going to hit 50% or more of enrollees in Medicare Advantage itself. Next year. The providers need really a holistic approach where they can treat MA not as an afterthought, but as a key component of the negotiation that needs to be balanced with the commercial plans that the payer is offering. MA expansion is actually a leading priority for most payers, given its growth nationally. And that insight means health systems are in the driver's seat and well positioned to balance payer ass on MA with providers' commercial priorities. Next year it is. So that becoming almost a wedge issue where if you have a provider sitting down across from a payer and that payer has multiple lines of business, so commercial, Medicare Advantage, Medicaid, looking at their need and desire to grow that Medicare Advantage enrollment. And if there's multiple payers in the market trying to do the same thing and you're the only provider or a dominant provider being willing to hold yourself out of those MA plans in return for either relief from the audits and the denials, better rates on your commercial side, whatever it may be, but using your position 
to drive positive discussions for the organization across books of business continues to be a theme that we're hearing. And that goes back to where do we have strengths? How essential are we? As Sushmed said, how do we think about ourselves compared to our peers? And can we leverage that in a meaningful way? Yeah, good. I was hoping you were going to go there, Brian. And I've heard the same pattern, especially because the market position for payers on the commercial side is usually different than the market position within MA. MA is usually more fragmented, but it's also been a tricky balance because some of the less dominant players in MA will be more willing to partner with a provider system. But at the same time, you can't do that at the expense of the dominant commercial plan in your market. In some ways, the dominant commercial plan has a leg up on the MA partnerships, because even though they're often separate discussions, it's the same team and it's the same organization. I've certainly heard that dynamic, and I think it's going to be a pattern that particularly the Blues and Anthem try to exploit as their market position in MA is usually not as dominant as it is in commercial. Brian and Sushma, thanks. We covered a lot. The bit of this research and the few interviews I got to participate in were really fascinating, and I think you well summarized so much of what we heard. So as health systems start to see the results of open enrollment here this fall going into next year, I'm sure these insights about payer positioning will be invaluable. So thanks so much for sharing your perspective with our audience. Look forward to having you back soon. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review us and or follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn at SG2 Healthcare. And if you want to talk more about innovative healthcare strategies, you can always email me at sg2perspectives at sg2.com. Finally, SG2 is a Vizient company, and there are a bunch of Vizient podcasts that you might like. You can find them at Vizient backslash podcasts. Have a great day.